0: All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening uh, to those of you listening to um, episode one in our learning series, our Tether learning series uh, entitled Four Behaviors that Boost Inbound Sales. Um, In this learning series, we're going to be going into um, a lot of detail around the research and some of the findings that went into our recent HBR article by the same uh, title, Four Behaviors that Boost Inbound Sales which was uh, co-authored by myself, Uh, I'm Matt Dixon, I'm the Chief Research and Innovation Officer at Tether. Uh, My colleague, Ted McKenna, who is our SVP of Research and Innovation, and Ted is uh, joining me um, uh, on this learning series. Ted, uh, say hello.
1: Hey Matt, great to be here.
0: And uh, our colleague Tom Shepard. Tom is not with us uh, for this recording, but we wouldn't be here without him. Uh, Tom is our uh, senior software engineer, our head of AI and machine learning, and really our chief data scientist at Tether. So, a lot of the uh, a lot of the the method behind the madness came from uh, Tom's brain and Tom's hard work. So, thank you, Tom, for uh, for everything you did to to surface these findings and uh, and put us in the position to be able to share them with uh, folks today. Um, so. What we're going to do in uh, this first episode is we're going to recap uh, a little bit of the the findings from the article, uh, why we went and did this research, uh, how we did the research, and then what we found, and ultimately, what are the implications uh, for sales organizations. Um, I'm going to provide a a bit of a recap, a high-level recap of the article. Again, for those of you who haven't read it, or for those of you who have, just as a refresher, make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, And then in subsequent uh, episodes, we're going to do four more episodes, Uh, you'll remember, and as the title of the article suggests, there were four behaviors that we found that really make a difference and really drive performance in inbound sales. And so we're going to do an episode on each one of those behaviors. We're going to double-click on each one, talk about some of the data, uh, talk about some of the surprises um, in that data. And as those of you who know, read the article, there were a lot of counterintuitive findings um, throughout, and then we're going to talk about the implications for managers and for sales organizations. So, um, uh, again, thank you for joining us. I uh, hope you enjoy this series, but let's get to it. So, just to uh, provide a bit of a recap, and then uh, Ted, I'm going to pull you in here. Where I want to go back to where this all began and, and kind of why we even decided to do this research to begin with. But uh, the article, just in sum, we uh, or in summary, we shared. The findings from a, uh, a large study that we ran where we built a predictive sales model, uh, where we looked at sales performance specifically in inbound sales uh, conversations. So uh, just in, in layperson's terms, what we're talking about is when customers call companies to buy things. So that uh, could be business to consumer, it could be business to business, but it's, you know, could be as simple as Ted, you or I picking up the phone and calling a uh, mobile carrier to get a quote on a mobile plan and uh, get a price for a a device we might be interested in. Or it could be us calling our car, you know, a car insurance company or uh, a life insurance company to get a quote. Um, And so we were looking at uh, more than a dozen companies. Uh, We built a predictive sales model uh, that contained and we're going to talk more about this. Uh, more than 8,300 independent variables and proved to be quite predictive. I don't want to steal any of Ted's thunder because he's going to tell us more about how we did the research, but we then applied that to a broader sample of more than two and a half million uh, inbound sales calls. And what we found uh, is that the best performers out there exhibit four key behaviors. And again, we're gonna go into more detail, uh, a little bit more detail on this uh, in this episode and a lot more detail in the subsequent episode, episodes, but the four behaviors uh, were as follows. We found the first thing high performers do is they disqualify aggressively, meaning they don't spend a lot of time or really any time on opportunities that are unlikely to convert. And they're very good at separating, if you will, the good opportunities from the bad. The second uh, key behavior was that high performers are really good at driving customer decisions. And the way they do that is by prescribing a solution for the customer, not by diagnosing the customer's needs. And we're going to talk a lot more about this in that episode, because that was super surprising to us uh, to find this because it's very counter to what is classically taught in sales training today. The third lesson was that high performers dig into customer objections. They don't uh, let you know bad news kind of lurk in the background. They do everything they can to get that bad news up front and center, get it articulated by the customer so that they can deal with it and manage it. And the last behavior is that they de-risk the purchase decision. The way they do that is through a combination of creating scarcity and urgency that helps the customer want to make a decision now, not think about it later, but make a decision now. Now, ultimately, we found this had a huge impact on sales conversion. I'm going to save that, um, uh, for the end of this episode, because it really is the punchline, the, the, so what, if you will, uh, but we found a huge return when, um, the salespeople exhibit these four behaviors, conversion rates are, or not just an order of magnitude, several orders of magnitude higher than when they don't. And so we'll talk more about that. And then of course, in the following episodes, we're going to get into a lot more detail on each of these behaviors, but let me kind of take us all the way back, you know, Ted, um, let's talk a little bit about the, the provenance or the occasion uh, for this research. You know, the thing we talk about, and I think there was more to it than, than merely the, the real estate we allocated to this in the article. But for those of you who read it, you know, the, in the opening, we talk about this, this COVID phenomenon where, you know, foot traffic is really down uh, in a lot of, uh, for a lot of organizations, so if we thinking about store traffic or uh, field-based uh, sales interactions and so the inbound sales center, the inbound sales call center has become a much more important channel uh, in this COVID environment. So that was the occasion we kind of used to set up um, the article in HBR. But I think there's more to it than that, right? So and you and I have talked a lot about this. We were just limited by the number of words that HBR gave us, mm-hmm. but tell me a little bit more about you know, your thoughts on that, but, but more kind of the secular trend driving this and, and why, why we think this is not just a story of the, the pandemic, but a story of what's been happening uh, in terms of the way companies think about this channel uh, over the course of several years now.
1: Yeah, you know, we've talked uh, in other settings about how some of the types of things that have hit contact centers because of COVID in some ways have just exacerbated secular trends that were occurring before. And so when you think about, you know, especially the aspects of the COVID uh, pandemic that have caused economic disruption um, and therefore, you know, just less and less uh, good economic outcomes for uh, for those contact centers. No surprise, they're putting a little bit more pressure or expecting more out of their contact centers in terms of conversion of sale, upsell, cross-sell and those types of, of opportunities. Uh, I think it also probably has something to do with the, even the channels through which they're looking to serve the, those customers. So you see things like, you know, as organizations are doing more and more of kind of the easy service items through self-service or even through things like chatbots, uh, the expectations for those agents may shift more towards sales or spotting those types of opportunities Beyond just those those service uh, type opportunities, and so again, we'll continue to observe this. But we that's part of the reason we think we are continuing to hear from, you know, our customers about new ways that they can find taking taking agents who maybe like are more comfortable with a service type interaction, but now have expectations to go and drive sales, which is, as we know, is a, can be a very different thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this is a um, I remember when you know you and I were both at uh, CEB, which is now part of Gardner Group, and. Back in the day, this is, uh, you know, uh, eight nine years ago, we wrote a study on shifting from service only to service to sales, and that you know, so almost a decade ago, and that has just picked up steam uh, as you've as you've said, you know, the easy stuff going away, more of an expectation that, you know, not just that we perform at a very high level in the inbound sales center, but that our service agents, our service representatives also can spot those opportunities to upsell and cross-sell. Now, and I guess uh, the, the other reason I'd throw out there, um, and, and Ted, I'd love to hear your thoughts here on this one, but you know, truthfully, this is uh, I think we chose to write about it because we're good at it as a company, and I don't know how else to put it, but you know, um, we at Tether, uh, which is a conversation analytics uh, platform, uh, we're helping companies surface insights from unstructured data. Now those could be insights uh, around how to improve customer service, uh, in, insights into um, how to improve um, a products, right, or, or market, you know, promotional offers or, or brand messages, insights around how to uh, improve compliance or reduce compliance failures. But I, I think one of the sweet spot use cases, and, and I, I would argue one of the most powerful use cases for platforms like ours is sales, right, because it, it, is, uh, it is so uh, measurable, right? We know exactly those things. We can build models. We can look at exactly the things that happen in a sales interaction, things that reps say, the way they respond to customers, and we can draw a straight line uh, to uh, outcomes companies care about uh, conversion rate, um, uh, price point, right? Upsell and cross sell success rates. But Ted, talk, you know, you work with a lot of our, our customers on the sales use case. So tell us a little bit more about kind of what companies are working on. We're going to talk more about how we did the research here in a moment. but. You know, um, I hopefully I'm not speaking out of school here, but I think this is this is one of those things that we have a lot of expertise in as a company.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, so some of the core at use cases for this type of, of technology in, the, in a sales uh, center like this is, you know, some of it can just be just core, you know, performance improvement, you know, right? You're looking for behaviors that they're exhibiting, um, they're, how they're responding to objections to the extent to which they're using the right rebuttals and and so forth. Um, some of them start to get into, Things like A, B testing different sales pitches and trying to test for, you know, receptivity from customers as they look to uh, pitch in a certain way. And of course, the marketing team is going to have interest in learning about those things as they launch new products or as they offer new discounts and, uh, and things like that. Um, And then, you know, broadly is, again, I think marketing also plays a big role in in sort of observing these types of things. And they look at things like competitive intelligence, how we're looking to differentiate against against our our core competitors in those types of of settings. So it ranges everything from behaviors to the way in which we go to market and how we're differentiating and uh, looking. And then and then lastly, you know, sort of making sure that we're driving the right amounts of urgency, uh, which gets to another point I I was going to make, you know, technology helps us of course to measure these types of things in the sales arena but the same thing is true far upstream in the customer journey and you talk about you mentioned matt the notion of having being able to measure these things i think what you're also finding is that companies have been more and are able to be more intentional about directing customers through this type of channel yeah. you know partly that's through advertisements and how they can use very sophisticated targeting uh algorithms, let's face it, from a Facebook or a Google as a way to drive customers to this channel. And you have to imagine that's because they believe certain customers are more likely to buy when they're talking to a human. And so that, that in some ways makes it even more interesting to then examine those types of interactions where we're really sort of hit where the rubber hits the road you know, when they're having these conversations and, and, you're, and you're have, you have know, big differences between how some sales reps handle those situations versus others.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so lots, of, uh, lots of reasons to study this, and uh, all, all of them good, uh, invalid. W- let's talk a little bit about how we did it. Um, before we tell, I'm going to ask you to talk more about uh, the predictive model we built and how we did this specific research. But I, I'm cognizant of the fact that a lot of our listeners probably don't have a lot of expertise around conversational analytics. So let me just, if I could, uh, break down how this technology works at a very high level, and then if you could talk a little bit more, more about how we applied it to the study. Uh, that'd be great. So the um, at the highest level, what we what we're doing at Tether is we're taking uh, these unstructured conversations. In this case, we're talking about sales conversations. So, uh, in our study, those uh, had a couple of different. Um, uh, there were a couple of different channels that were used. So, primarily, we're looking at phone calls. So this is when a customer picks up the phone. They call their insurance company. They call their, you know, home services company. They call their mobile carrier, their other uh, cable provider, or their bank. Right, and they're talking to a sales agent, those conversations are recorded as audio. Now, of course, um, uh, the first step is we've got to turn it into text. And so we use a process called uh, transcription, uh, also called uh, automated speech recognition, where we actually uh, can use technology to use change convert that audio into text, right? So we're taking that unstructured audio, and then we're basically just turning it into unstructured text. Now, some of the interactions in our study were already text because those were chat based interactions. So this is where, you know, as we know, you, you fight, you open up a chat window, maybe with your mobile carrier, and you're in a chat interaction with that uh, agent or with that representative about, um, you know, uh, a phone you're looking at, a device you're considering, a family plan, a, da- a certain data plan, et cetera. Uh, and that Rep's goal obviously is to get you to buy it. Um, so some of them were already text, but most of them that we looked at were actually audio and we had to convert them into text. Now, at that point, we still just have um, a a blob of text. And so it's a big mess of unstructured text. And so we've got to bring structure to it. And the way we do that uh, is by using uh, machine learning. And specifically, we're going to talk a lot about this over the next few uh, few episodes. We uh, use something called uh, machine learning categories. What is a category? A category, think of the category as a training set. Uh, it is us giving the machine instructions to go find when a certain thing happens in a conversation. So let me i will give you a real simple example and then maybe a more complex one. Uh, the simple example would be teaching a machine to go find, let's say uh, we're looking at um, uh, auto insurance uh, uh, phone calls, uh, sales phone calls. And we're looking to find uh, what percentage of customers are calling in for uh, the military discount uh, program that we offer. That's a really easy thing, it goes by a specific name, it might have a couple of different variations to it, but we can create a category which contains all the various ways in which customers mention the military discount program. And a machine, when when it's going through this unstructured text can spot all the times that that is mentioned by the customer or by the agent, right? We can also look for more complex things. So let's think about uh, an agent behavior. You know, one of the things we've talked about in the past, we're going to talk about more uh, in this series Uh, Are agent behaviors like uh, advocacy? So, advocacy is when uh, a representative uses language that shows the customer that they're on the customer's side, right? So, um, you know, Ted, let's, I I understand you're having this problem or you got this question. Let's see if we can work through this together. Let me see if I can help you out in some way. You know, we know in our, our prior research that that has a really powerful effect in terms of reducing effort. We also find it has a powerful effect in terms of driving sales conversion, it turns out. But the point here is that advocacy, unlike a military discount program or the name of a specific product, advocacy is a kind of messy concept, right? It's a human behavior. Well, at Tether, what we've done is we built these machine learning categories. So the advocacy category contains all the different ways that a representative might demonstrate that behavior in a human to human conversation. And we've taught the machine to spot all those different uh, ways that it might be demonstrated as well as all the, the ways it's not demonstrated, right? Because they're an important part of building these categories is weeding it up, is, is getting it to a point where it doesn't um, uh, yield false positives, right? It's not the machine saying, hey, advocacy happened here. I spotted it in a call and you look at it and say, that's not really advocacy. So there's a lot of trial and error testing and retesting that happens when we build these categories. But at Tether, we have uh, more than a thousand uh, out of the box categories uh, that we use. We use many of them in the research as Ted's gonna tell us here in a moment. But this is how we start to bring structure to this unstructured data. Because now what we have is lots of transcribed phone calls or chat interactions, but they're tagged with insights. We know when those insights occurred, when those things happened, um, uh, how many times they happened, in what sequence, or maybe in what uh, reaction to something a rep may may have said or may not have said, uh, et cetera. Ultimately, uh, what we do is we then look at uh, how that uh, pertains to outcomes. So, in this case, as Ted's going to tell us in a moment, we were looking at how these different insights, these different events in conversations, these different exhibited behaviors, etc., how those things um, drove or uh, depressed, in some cases, sales conversion. And so, we had a known outcome for every single one of those sales conversations in our study. We knew whether it resulted in a closed sale or not. So. We're ultimately able to imagine this. We're ultimately able to take that really messy thing, which is unstructured phone call or chat interaction, and be able to say what happened in that that actually statistically drove that outcome that we care about, which is a closed sale. So that's kind of how a little bit of how this technology works. And again, we work across lots of use cases at Tether. The specific use case here we were looking at though was sales. So Ted, tell us though about this, the predictive model that we built and what specifically we did in this study And then we're going to go into a little bit more detail around what we found.
1: Yeah, so we had 120 different categories or concepts that Matt mentioned and what's really cool about one of the many things as you can tell we're excited about the technology is you, you can look at both sides of the conversation so in those 120 concepts we had both things on the agent side so the types of behaviors that they're engaging in the the techniques they might go to use classic probing techniques rebuttal techniques upsell techniques and so forth um, how they go about Um, handling the interaction itself so some fundamentals around like politeness or how they recap situations how they handle even the purchase uh, situation itself but then also on the customer side things like why were they buying why were they shopping uh, that day the emotions that they brought to the conversation and how they conveyed those throughout the course of the interaction and objections of course that they present Throughout the uh, the interaction, and on top of that, we also added in a series of audio characteristics where that uh, did apply. So, getting into things around the efficiency of the conversation itself: how long did it take? Was there a fair amount of silence time, and uh, and uh, as, and how active was the conversation? Right. So, interruptions, overtalk are good proxies for how active those conversations were. The the sparring, if you will, between uh, between agent and customer. So you take those 120 concepts and when we run it through that model, as Matt said, we're using sort of a closed sale dependent variable there. It actually expands into almost 8,400 different variables. And the reason for that is because we're not looking just at those single variables, we're looking at combinations therein and sequences across the course of those interactions, which helps us to understand both the order and, and in some ways almost the way in which those things are modified when they're surrounded by other things But also the intensity of those situations. So does it matter if a customer is confused about a certain offer and they say they're confused three different times in the conversation, we're going to measure that relationship and understand does it change as you order it the second and third or even fourth time. And so we're picking up on all this very sophisticated ways in which we can get to this specific thing, which is why... When we looked at the accuracy of the model, we found we got to, we predicted with with accuracy about 85% of the time with the sale, given these categories, which is actually quite precise if you think about you know being able to, to map 85% of potential sale with just these 120 base concepts. And so we were really pleased with that. And as I think you'll see in the article and as we go through the series, it gives us really, really powerful ways to point to very specific agent behaviors and say, we know with, uh, with with definitive uh in a definitive manner that these things are actually going to make a big difference in terms of conversion
0: yeah absolutely so it was um a lot of a lot of science uh so we uh, that'll that'll conclude the super
1: i think we, yeah story. i think we've convinced <laughs> yeah. some of that <laughs> Fine, no. that'll,
0: that'll did we the- mention the- there was technology involved <laughs> right. that'll include the, the nerdy segment uh of the, uh of the podcast but so let me recap again what we found so we you know and this was this was, these weren't the only things we felt. So there was a lot of cutting room floor material, but I think when, when Ted and I kind of um, uh, sort of poured through the data and we, we went back and forth on, on the story, it was really telling. I think what became clear is there was a story of four key behaviors uh, that really matter. And there was a lot of other stuff too, obviously, but at the highest level, four key behaviors that matter. So let me just double click a little bit again, then the on episodes are going to go into a lot more detail. So I don't want to steal our thunder there but just to get us all on the same page. And then Ted, I'm gonna ask you uh, in, in recognizing we're both dads, we love all of our children equally, but I'm gonna ask you which one was your favorite kind of lesson or, or what was the most surprising thing to you across all of these things? Or maybe even sort of as you think about the entirety of the story, it tells us what, um, what jumps out to you as, as sort of the most head snapping thing. But just to recap a little bit, um, the first one uh, was that high performers disqualify aggressively. You know so it, it, it was surprising to us though as we thought about it and I think as you know Ted and I thought a little bit about the stuff that we do ourselves when we call companies um, maybe not that surprising that it turns out a lot of the interactions that end up in the sales queue are actually not sales interactions um, there was a huge chunk of them and we'll go into more detail uh, in epi- in the second episode uh, around some of the data here but a huge chunk of them that actually are customer service calls so these are these are um, for a variety of reasons, customers who end up in the sales queue, we have some hypotheses and, and some of them that we've been able to validate with the data as to why that happens. But the point here is that um, where average performing salespeople will, you know, for them hope springs eternal and they will keep uh, chasing those opportunities even if they know deep down, this is a misdirected call. It's not a customer who's any interest in buying anything. They will still try to uh, convert them and sometimes they are successful. But what's interesting is high performers um, through, through a process of disqualification, find out who are the real opportunities or who are the real um, uh, shoppers or buyers in their queue and who are the folks who just ended up there um, mistakenly. Not, they don't belong there. They're not real um, uh, sales opportunities and they move them on. Uh, and so they do that. And we'll talk in, again in episode two about how they do it so that they, it doesn't come across to our customers as, as really punting responsibility or or you know, punting them uh, off to somebody else. But that was the first lesson they disqualify aggressively. The second one um, was that uh, high performers drive the customer decision by prescribing a solution rather than diagnosing. And I mentioned this before, but really uh, eye-opening stuff here. It turns out that while every salesperson and almost every uh, sales uh, contact center around the world uh, is taught, to ask the customer at the very beginning of the call, you know, what has you shopping for car insurance today? Or uh, can you tell me how much you currently pay for your mobile plan? Or um, what do you use the internet for? And tell me about your your home internet usage. And the the idea there is that if I can diagnose the customer's needs, then I can prescribe uh, the right product, the right service, the right solution for their needs. But what was really interesting to us is that high performers they may be trained on that, but they certainly don't do that. They don't, uh, in their view, they don't spend a lot of time uh, wasting the customer's time and really dragging them back to square one of the purchase journey. Um, instead, what they do is they they kind of pick up the story where are the customers they meet the customer where they are. Rather than asking them to explain all over again why they're shopping for car insurance, they jump right into where the customer is, what are they considering, what are the options, what are the different plans they're looking at, and then they prescribe a plan. So they really do. Uh, make a recommendation. I, I thought the 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 thing that struck me here is they're they're less like bartenders and more like personal trainers in this um, around this behavior. There they're saying, hey, if I were you, I would do this. Personally, I would choose this package. Here, here's what I'd go with. Again, we're going to talk more about this uh, in the uh, in the third uh, third episode. In the fourth episode, we're going to be talking about the the um, uh, behavior number three, which was digging into customer objections. Now. Um, also uh, powerful here, but um, you find that there are a lot of objections in these sales calls and your average performers are are want to kind of uh, not bring up bad news, if you will. They don't want to surface these objections. They don't want the. I think it's out of fear that, you know, the customer may talk themselves out of the purchase. And if they might be concerned about it being too expensive or the contract term being too long, I'm not going to bring that up because I don't want to bring up bad news because it might jeopardize my chances of closing a sale. But high performers they've got like a a detector, they're out there trying to find those objections and get them articulated by the customer. And I think part of what's going on there, and again, we'll talk about this in more detail later, but what's going on there is that they believe any objection, um, if if allowed to fester and if unarticulated will ultimately undermine their ability to close a deal now. So you've got to get those objections on the table. You've got to air out the dirty laundry and you got to deal with it. And then the fourth uh, behavior, which we're gonna talk about in the very last episode in our series, is that they they drive the close by de-risking the purchase decision. So, uh, you know, average performers. I, I would say any sales rep knows the kiss of death in these these fast-paced inbound uh, sales interactions. The kiss of death is when the customer tells you they need to think about it, right? Which, you know, or I'll call you back later, which we know customers rarely, if ever do. Uh, that's really just a polite way of saying no. Um, and the customer uh, that is, that's the thing that high performers want to avoid like the plague. And part of the reason they get that uh, they're able to get that customer over the fence from, I'm not really sure I need to think about it to You know what, here's my credit card number, or you know what, sign me up for this plan. Let's get going is by using a combination of scarcity and urgency by showing the customer that, you know, I can't guarantee that this rate's going to be the same tomorrow or that this package or this product to be available tomorrow for you. If you call back later, I know you need to think about it and urgency, hey, uh, you know, uh, uh, I can uh, I can assure you if you have any hesitation here after you talk to your significant other, you change your mind, uh, you can call us back and cancel. So they, they try to de-risk the, the choice or the decision of doing something now. So those were the four key behaviors we found. Now, Ted, I'm going to put you on the spot here. And again, I know I think it was all interesting stuff. I personally kind of got a favorite or a theme that I think about. But but you and I worked together on a lot of the research around challenger selling when we were at CEB. Um, in some ways, this, this kind of um, is reflective of some of that insight. Um, but what jumped out to you? If you think about the arc of the story, if you think about those individual behaviors, what was the big kind of aha? Like, this is this is the most powerful thing, the most surprising thing uh, to you. Yeah.
1: And, and I wanna, we're going to get to the payoff, right? We got to talk to them yeah, about course, it. what's the upside of getting to these. And so we'll talk about the close rates. But for me, you know, I'll take sort of in some ways the easy but more interesting way out, which is I don't think it's one thing. I think there's, some, there's a theme that threads throughout, which is, you know, if you think about today's buyer, uh, particularly in a sort of consumer setting, although I think there's application across for, for B2B buyers as well, there's so many easy ways to buy online right? There's so many easy ways to go and purchase. And yet these are people who have chosen to not do that, right? They've called in for some specific reason. And I think the same thing would be true if, you know, somebody's trying, they could buy a, a, a you know, a pair of jeans online, but they still walk into the store to yeah. go try on them. And so there's a lot of lesson about understanding that th- who that person is, right? What type of buyer is that, that they forego the easy way, potentially? or at least what some of us might consider to be the easy way is to just click through on the on the website and buy and yet they want to talk to the human to conduct that transaction or potentially conduct that transaction and as you go through those four kind the of lessons that actually sort of is threaded throughout right keep in mind who this type of buyer is the way in which they, they are interacting, what's causing them to, uh, to be hesitant about that purchase, and why does that then translate into a specific set of, of purposes? So keep that in mind as we go throughout the series.
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a really good point. I think what you're what you're hitting on here is the same thing that I, I kind of went to, no surprise since we worked on this together when we talked about this <laughs> ad nauseum, but, but you're talking about this phenomenon of, of, of indecision, right? You've got a customer who could have, like you said, they could have taken the easy route could have just put that that mobile phone, uh, that device, that plan, that um, triple play package of cable and internet and phone, or that auto insurance policy in the shopping cart and bought it. Like you can buy a lot of pretty complicated, sophisticated stuff online today. None of the things actually was interesting. None of those sales calls, I would argue, were products or services that customers could not have bought online. Like Those are all things that all of those companies I know for a fact sell online, but nevertheless, the customer called in. And why did they call in, right? And, and you're you're right. There's something blocking them, or it's a it's like a splinter in their brain, or something that's keeping them from pulling the trigger. They're stuck, right? They yeah. they don't know if it's the right decision. They're stuck between options. They're looking at plan A versus plan B, but there's something, and they need to flesh it out. They need to have a conversation with somebody to uh to to generate that level of comfort uh, so that they can move forward. But they're really stuck. Uh, which is, is kind of what what jumps out and what you yeah. just
1: said. We should mention, by the way, that I'm, I'm not aware of any sponsors that we have for this podcast series. So Matt will mention some product <laughs> names, but that's just free advertising, I guess, for that's whoever good. the yeah.
0: provider <laughs> is. <laughs> I wish this were like sophisticated product. But it's <laughs> accidental at best. So let's talk about the the payoff, right? Because this is yep. really um, where, uh, where the rubber hits the road. None of this stuff really matters if it doesn't drive sales conversion. So Ted, I'm going to let you... Um, uh, you know, you this is a lot yeah. of this, your hard work, but can you tell us about what we saw in terms of uh, conversion rate when these behaviors are applied versus when they're not?
1: Yep, yeah. So so we'll talk more about this, I think in the in the next two series, actually, about the differing amounts of win rates you see. But on average, let's call it any routine time, 25 and 35% of time you'd expect a closed sale. Um, as you look at these types of behaviors, what's really interesting is that of the four, you start to see sort of a linear improvement. So you know, if you don't do any of them at all, you have a, like really almost no chance of closing, 5%. Um, now that doesn't happen all that often, only 10 or 15% of the time. Um, you start to get into, you know, maybe not great, but not terrible. So you're doing a couple of these things. You know, that happens 56, 50 uh 50% uh, of the time or so, but you're already lifting close rates all the way up to 37%. Um, and it just keeps going up from there. If you get the majority of the skills, you're getting close to 60% win rate, potentially all the way up to 75%. So real huge lift potential by doing all these things in conjunction with one another. And I think you know, as researchers, one thing we're always you know sort of wary of is is trying to to make it an all or nothing thing. <laughs> you know where, okay, how realistic is it that somebody's going to really do every single one of these things perfectly? Not that all that realistic. So what I think is most interesting is just going from not that great to average or even a little above average gives you a significant lift in terms of, of win potential.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great it's a great point. So on the extremes, we're looking at like a, from 5% to 70, 75%. But yeah. you said that's kind of an extreme impact case, right? And the, and the truth is, I think most of our sellers are are doing some of this. It might just be accidentally, right? But, <laughs> yeah, but right. some of it's happening. So we're not really starting at zero in most cases and it's probably unrealistic to expect that we would get all four of these de- you know demonstrated and used all the time but the lift is still massive if you think about you know think about an organization that's fielding in uh, so you know, some of the companies in our study are fielding literally millions of inbound sales uh, calls you know those are all you know call it Uh, seven to 10 minutes or six to 10 minutes in length. It depends on the company, right? And what they're actually selling. Some of those calls are longer, some are shorter. That's real money, right? These are real people that you are paying to to convert those inbound contacts into closed deals. Um, Your ability to to swing it that much just by getting them to do a little bit more of the good stuff and a little bit less of the bad stuff is enormous. And so in the follow-on episodes, we're going to talk in a lot more detail about those four behaviors but hopefully you've enjoyed this kind of high level walkthrough. For those of you who read the article, hopefully this is a good refresher, give you a little bit of color behind, um, you know, why we did this, uh, how we did it, what we found, and, and kind of what we found uh, personally really interesting about this. Again, join us for the for the follow on our um, episodes. We're gonna do four episodes, one on each of the key behaviors. We're gonna talk about what we found, we're gonna talk about what it means and what helps explain the finding. Um, from social science and what we know about what great salespeople do from other sources of research and other research Ted and I have done in the past. And then lastly, what should you do about it, right? What's the management guidance uh, that we care about? So again, please join us and thanks for listening to the first episode.